perhaps we should open our eyes and think about other options, options that actually work. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, find us at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall respond to the recent Trump administration budget proposal with some economic theories of our own, including what really built the American middle class, what makes Scandinavian countries so happy and prosperous, why universal social safety net programs are so superior to means-tested ones, and lastly, stick around to the end to hear the origin story of the Republican strategy to always run up the national debt and deficit themselves while in power, and then complain about it while not in power. Our clips today come from Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolff, The Nation Magazine, The Young Turks, The Majority Report, and The Tom Hartman Program. We are now living through the second worst collapse of capitalism in its history. The greatest collapse was still the 1930s. We have not surpassed that, although we yet may. So that 2008 to today is the second worst after the Great Depression. But something is very, very different in how Americans reacted to the 29 crash and how they have reacted to the 2008 crash. I want to talk about that difference. I want to explain it to you. And I'd like to tease out of it the very important lesson of why they're different and what we can learn from that difference. So let's start with 1929 and the 1930s, what we now call the Great Depression. Everything collapsed. We'd had a period of growth after World War I was over. We called this rapid economic growth of America the Roaring Twenties. And it was an exciting time of economic growth. But it was also a time when capitalists made risky investments, which it turned out were reckless, were unthought through, and were dangerous. And what proved it was very clear. It was the collapse in 1929 when the economic growth came to a dead stop and reversed itself into becoming economic decline. Just to remind everyone, by 1933, a bare four years into this uh, economic downturn, the unemployment rate in the United States, the official rate, was 25%. One out of four workers was without a job. And what that meant was every single American family, with an insignificant number of exceptions, was touched by this. Mother or father, uncle or grandma was out of a job, which meant the remaining members of the family had to share their income with the one who had lost his or hers. It was a terrible time of difficulty. It was a time that we remember if we read books like Of Mice and Men and other staggering studies, The Grapes of Wrath, many come to mind, that describe what America was like in the Great Depression. But now let's talk about the reaction of the American people to the suffering, to the unemployment, to the loss of income, and so on. 
Americans reacted at first with surprise and shock, not so hard to understand, but very quickly the surprise and the shock turned to anger and to action. And here already we're going to begin to see something different from what has happened since 2008. Anger at whom? Anger at the business community who was blamed for the banking decisions, the lending decisions, the investment decisions that had plunged the economy into disaster. Stopped calling them captains of industry and called them what they had been called earlier, robber barons, things like that. The mood darkened and the blame was clear where it was headed. But people didn't just blame, they also acted. And they acted in ways that are, again, remarkable. They did three things in particular. Number one, they joined labor unions. Millions of Americans who had never been in a labor union, whose parents had never been in a labor union, joined. Why? Simple reason. They felt they had a better chance to get through the hard times of a depression in the union than if they weren't in one. It was the greatest unionization drive in American history. We had never had anything like it before. We've never had anything like it since. But not only did millions of Americans join labor unions, but tens, even hundreds of thousands, joined two socialist parties and a communist party here in the United States. Parties that said that the problem wasn't just a business cycle downturn, the problem was the system itself, capitalism. And whether they as socialists or as communists uh, disagreed on many things, but they thought that capitalism had come to a screeching halt, that it was not acceptable, and that the United States could and should do better. Again remarkable was the cooperation between the communists, the socialists, and the labor unions to organize people into unions and to demand that the government of the United States help the masses of people in a dramatic way at a time when the government had no money. Why? Because if you have 25% of your people unemployed, they're not earning anything and they don't pay income taxes because they don't have an income. So notice the condition. Masses of people mobilized and organized by communists, socialists, and labor unions, demanding that the government do something for them when the government didn't have much money. And now perhaps the most remarkable thing at all, they got what they wanted. They fought for it and they got it. Let me explain. The socialists, communists, and trade unions asked for and got a meeting with the then president of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt. They basically said to him in so many words, you've got to do something for the mass of the American people, the millions, the tens of millions, suffering through the worst collapse of capitalism in its history. And we're not going to wait. And they didn't say it because they didn't have to. But the implicit message was, Mr. President, if you don't do something, we're not going to vote for you anymore, and you're not going to be president much longer uh, under these circumstances. 
And the socialists and communists added another hint, and if you don't do something, there may well be a revolution in this country because the people are not going to tolerate being left to live with a disaster imposed on them by the business community. Well, Mr. Roosevelt was a smart guy, good politician. He understood that this was serious. He knew that these forces represented tens of millions of voters and citizens, and you could not simply ignore them. So he went back to the business community and the wealthy, people he knew well because he was from that community himself. And he told them what he had just heard from the unions and the communists and the socialists, and he said to them, we have got to do something for these people or else dot, 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 and nobody knew how to finish that sentence, but it was ominous. Roosevelt persuaded, let's say, half of the people he spoke to, businessmen and women, wealthy folks, not the other half who were never convinced. But he had enough with half, since he could go back then to the unions, communists and socialists, which he did, and he said, okay, here's the deal I can make. We will give the mass of the American people real help, tangible help, to get them through this depression. But you, in exchange, have to, got, have to stop talking about revolution, socialism, communism, be satisfied with getting help for the mass of people, and we have a deal. The socialists, communists, and unions accepted that deal. Not everyone, there were some dissenters, but basically they bought the deal. And Roosevelt was good to his word. In the few years, starting 1933, the next few years, here's what he did, just to remind you all. Number one, he created the social security system, something most of you take for granted. We had never had a social security system. We'd never had a, a government program that said, when you reach age 65, we're going to give you a check every month for the rest of your life, however long that is. Social Security was a spectacular help to all Americans, not just the old who got the money, but all of their children, the young and the middle age, who suddenly had the government helping them rather than leaving the full responsibility for their elderly parents on their shoulders during a time of depression when they couldn't possibly carry that burden. They had a hard enough time taking care of themselves. No sooner had he created Social Security than he created the unemployment program. We had never done this in America before either. You get unemployed through no fault of your own, the government's going to give you a check every week for a year or two to see you through, to help you get along while you're looking for another job. And remember, this was at a time when there were tens of millions of unemployed people. The third thing he did was to create, for the first time in American history, a minimum wage to make sure that if you had a job, you couldn't be paid poverty-level wages. And the final thing, the government employment program. Between 1934 and 1941, Roosevelt hired, the government of the United States, hired and paid 15 million unemployed people who stopped being unemployed because they had that job, who built the national parks many of us now enjoy, who reclaimed land for ecological reasons for the first time in our history, who, because they earned income, were able to maintain their mortgage payments and keep stay in their homes. 
Roosevelt did for the mass of people more than had been asked of him. And you all should be wondering, where did the money come from to do all this? It was fiendishly expensive. The answer was, Roosevelt taxed the rich, and he taxed the big corporations. And what he couldn't get from them in taxes, he basically borrowed from them. One of those loans that they didn't have all that much choice about. That's right. A president of the United States taxed corporations and the rich to pay for a massive program of help to ordinary citizens. No wonder Roosevelt became a hero for the American people. No wonder Roosevelt was re-elected three times. No wonder that had never happened to any president before. He was the most popular president in the United States. Taxing corporations and the rich to help average people is not a losing political proposition. It's the exact opposite. Stunning, but all the more stunning. What happened afterwards, when the Depression is over, when World War II, which comes toward the end of the Depression, is over? It's 1945. The war is over. President Roosevelt dies. The American business community is, with some exceptions, enraged by what has happened. They have had to pay huge taxes they didn't want to, to support the living standards of millions of Americans. They didn't want that, and they fought against it. And they fought in two ways that are crucial for everyone listening and watching to understand. The first thing the business community did, very smart, was to say to the American people, you know, the security you now feel, the job you now have, the income you now earn? Isn't it wonderful that capitalism can produce such a middle class as we now have in America? Families in their own homes, families with a secure job. Fa you get the picture? The genius here was to turn something won by the struggle of unionists, socialists, and communists from the business community to turn it instead into some gift that the business community had given to the working class. So in Sweden, they have a different model than we do in the US. Uh, and I'm told by the right wing here in America, well, of course you can't work. Those guys are socialists. Socialists are totally dangerous. If you go around redistributing the wealth and sharing it with the middle class and the poor, <laughs> poor, well, that's going to destroy your economy, you knuckleheaded socialists. Well, let's find out if that's true, because um, Sweden actually um, put a very left-wing government in power in 2014. Their economy was struggling. I bet they tanked it, right? Well, let's find out. Uh, Bloomberg explains, high taxes, strong unions, and an equal distribution of wealth. That's the recipe for success. Wait a minute, success? In a globalized world, 
according to Magdalena Andersson, the social democratic economist who's also Sweden's finance minister. Now, she says that's her recipe for success, but is it true? The 50-year-old has been raising taxes and spending more on welfare since winning power in 2014. Oh, I mean, I'm told by not just the right wing in this country, but all the media that that is, whew, you cannot do that, man. You lower taxes to stimulate the government. Raising taxes, that'll kill your economy. What are you doing? And welfare. Oh, okay, let's find out. Sweden has one of the world's highest tax burdens with tax revenue about 43% of GDP, according to OECD data. The equivalent figure for the U.S. is about 26%, much, much, much lower. Sweden's economy has grown almost twice as fast as America's, expanding at 3.1% last year compared with 1.6% in the U.S. Wait, what happened? I thought it was supposed to kill the economy. It turned out it actually powered the economy. It made it grow much faster than it was growing before and much faster than it's growing here in America. They doubled us. I thought we were number one. At, at some points now recently, their GDP is growing around 4%. When American politicians talk about growing at 4%, uh, they are dismissed rightfully so in this context here in America as making out outlandish statements that are not remotely possible in the American context. Turns out it, they could be possible if we raise taxes. And I know like you've been brainwashed by television for so long. No, 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 the rich have to have everything. If they have everything, it'll trickle down to you and maybe, maybe you'll get something. No, 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 if you raise taxes, it'll destroy everything. It's just not true. You know what happens uh, when they, when you have a more equal distribution of wealth? People in the lower economic brackets have more money. You know what people in lower economic brackets do? They spend the money because they don't have a choice. They gotta eat, they gotta have uh, clothes for their kids. They immediately spend it. That's not a bad thing. What it does is it then goes back into the economy and circulates. And it helps your economy. And that's why you have a higher GDP and higher economic success. When you give ta massive tax cuts to the very, very wealthy, they don't spend it. They put it in their bank account. Yeah, they might buy a yacht or a mansion here or there. But overall, the billions of dollars or millions of dollars that they have, they largely save it. They keep it. They do not put it back in the economy. It is a losing strategy. You know, when we were actually number one, 1950s, 1960s, the era that uh, that the right wing in this country said was a golden era. Do you know how high the marginal ta tax rate was in America? It was as high, if not higher, than Sweden's is today. It was at, at oftentimes at 70%. At some points in that time period, it was at 90%. Now that didn't apply to everybody. That wasn't mean that you're going to take, they're going to take 90% of your money. No, they had a lot of different brackets. And if you were at an astronomical number, it would be for 90% of whatever was above that number. Now I'm not saying we got to go to 90% or even 70%. But what I am telling you is when we had high marginal tax rates, we had a booming economy. When Sweden has a high marginal tax rate, they have a booming economy. But I know another thing that the right wing says, oh, they're, but they're going to, it's going to turn them into bums. Nobody's going to work anymore. Well, let's find out if that's true. Sweden has the highest labor force participation in the European Union. Huh? Anderson attributes this to tax-funded parental leave and affordable daycare, which makes it easier for both parents to work. See, 
It's not some sort of left-wing conspiracy. Oh, I raise your taxes and I take the money and I control your life with it. No, they take the money and put it into things like healthcare so you don't die. Education so that your kids have just as much of a chance as any rich kid does. And they put it into parental care and daycare so that you can actually leave your kids in daycare and go to work. And guess what happens? More people go to work. I know, revolutionary. So every once in a while, the right wing here and the media, again, aids and abets them, will say, well, you want to be like Sweden? Kind of. Sounds pretty good. So, okay, but guys, come on, though. Let's be fair. When you do all this taxing and spending and and do record amount of welfare, it's going to destroy your budget, right? Now, our budget is a disaster. We keep cutting taxes, and we have giant deficits and enormous debt. So Sweden must be in worse shape, right? Let's find out. In contrast to most of its European peers, Sweden has budget surpluses. Oh, it turns out all of those talking points by conservatives in America were myths. They lied to you through and through. And when confronted with all of this data, you know what they'll say. They, if, they probably already said it in the comment section. Oh, just not fair because Sweden's so homogeneous. It's not like America where we have a lot of different races that mix. You know what that means? Well, Sweden's all white. That's why, right? <laughs> They're not letting refugees in or anything like that. So that's what, that's the right idea. Not their tax policy, not their economic policy, which would actually affect their taxes and their budget and their economy. No! Let's turn it about race, right? So one thing we know is Sweden not allowing refugees because the key to their success is that they're homogeneous. Uh, except for the fact that they have, quote, record refugee inflows. Not outflows, inflows. So they have done everything the right wing here in America tells you not to do. They brought in a record number of refugees. They did record number of welfare. They did record tax increases. And you know what they got? They got a booming economy that is growing at twice the rate of the American economy. They got surpluses. They got more people working. And they have a society that works. Now tell me again about how dangerous the Swedish economic system is. Perhaps we should open our eyes and think about other options, options that actually work. It's time to get back in the habit of reminding you that this show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you. Listeners more specifically like Ronald B. and Allie D., who signed up recently, going above and beyond, signing up as social justice warrior level members. And, you know, normally I just thank members and that's all there is to it, but listener Rico wrote in to me recently wanting to get in on that action. And Rico says, quote, I've been able to support you in the past, but this past year has been rough for me mentally, physically, and financially, so I haven't been able to recently. I want you to thank for me all the excellent women and men who have enabled me to keep listening to the vital voices who are fighting and will overcome the sickness we are struggling through. Being able to hear your show through all my shit has been a godsend. I'm getting back on track now and will definitely contribute as soon as I'm able. 
So for myself and for Rico, thanks so much to Ronald and Allie and all of the other members and donors who help keep this show going. But of course, membership isn't charity. Members get access to a special members podcast feed that they can use in place of their regular show feed because it includes ad-free versions of every episode plus members-only bonus content all in one place. And this week, the members will be getting a bonus episode that uses this episode as sort of a jumping-off point and draws a straight line from the founders' fears of governmental tyranny to us not wanting to give food to poor people. And uh, during the conversation, Amanda and I also take side trips to the Supreme Court and the gun control debate, and sort of one part cathartic rant and one part search for understanding as to why we can't have nice things. Now, remember that members get at least two of these bonus episodes each month during our rerun breaks, as well as commercial-free versions of every episode. So for all of that, and to support the work we do, simply become a member by pledging at least six bucks a month on Patreon. Uh, But as I always say, whether you can chip in only a buck or 20, uh, we really appreciate any support you can give. So please think about signing up. Find us at patreon.com slash bestofleft or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com to get started. Thanks in advance for your support. Last week in Denmark, the Knutsons had a little baby girl they named Emma. That same day, the Smiths had a little baby in the United States and they called her Rachel. Right now, they're just two little babies keeping their parents awake at night. But people in the U.S. and Denmark have very different priorities, and that's going to lead to different futures for Emma and Rachel. It all boils down to this. Though Danes pay a lot more than Americans in taxes and government fees, they get a whole lot more back in the form of social services. As a result, Americans end up spending twice as much out of pocket for those same social goods and services. In six months, Emma will probably enroll in preschool. By law, every six-month-old Danish baby is guaranteed high-quality preschool, and parents can't be charged more than a quarter of the costs. Parents who can't afford it, well, they don't have to pay. Back in the U.S., the Smiths make too much to qualify for a Head Start preschool program. So they'll either have to park little Rachel with Dale's mom, or one of them will have to get a second job to help pay for daycare. That little luxury could set the Smiths back as much as 22000 bucks a year. It costs a lot to raise kids these days, no matter where you live, but the Newtons will enjoy a child benefit that starts at $225 a month. And when Emma hits age 7, they'll get 140 a month until she's 17. And that benefit isn't based on how much money a family earns. It's something that everyone with a child gets. Back in the U.S., little Rachel's learning some cool baby tricks so she can get into a good preschool and land a spot in a decent elementary school that will prepare her for a high school that will help her get into college. Some American schools are world-class, but others, often serving students from low-income families, can rank down there with those in developing countries. That means the Smiths may soon be shopping for a house in another school district, a notion that would never even occur to the Knutsons because public schools in Denmark are pretty much all world-class. Emma and Rachel are good students, and they'll both go to college when they get older. In Denmark, almost every college student attends public colleges and universities which don't charge tuition. 
Rachel will navigate a very different educational system. She'll probably end up with a good deal of debt. In the U.S., 71% of the class of 2015 graduated with student loan debt, averaging around 35 grand. Fresh out of school, the young women enter the workforce, and there they'll have different experiences, too. If Rachel is lucky, she'll get two weeks a year of paid vacation, but maybe not. The U.S. is the only industrialized nation that doesn't require it. Emma, like most full-time workers in Denmark, is guaranteed five weeks of paid vacation time. And that doesn't include the nine public holidays, and many Danes then enjoy a sixth week of paid vacation around Christmas. Add it up, and you're looking at seven weeks of paid vacation, which really lets you relax like a Viking. Danes and Americans have similar incomes, but Americans work about a quarter more hours. That means that Danes get to spend about an hour and a half more each day on leisure activities than Americans. When Rachel loses her job, she'll qualify for unemployment benefits that cover about half of her income, usually up to half a year. Emma will lose a job at some point, too. Hey, it happens to the best of us, but she'll get up to 90% of what she was making, and she can collect that for up to two years and sometimes more. Now, some people will say those generous benefits create a culture of dependency and discourage people from looking for work. But 73% of working-age Danes have a paid job, compared with just 60% of Americans. And Emma will always have access to an excellent public health care system. In Denmark, everyone's covered. Americans spend two and a half times as much per person on health care as the Danes, but around one in eight are still uninsured. Someday, Emma and Rachel will both have babies themselves. Emma won't have to pay anything for childbirth, but Rachel will have to pay around $5,000 out of pocket for a normal delivery. Rachel also lives in the only advanced economy that doesn't mandate paid family leave. She can take some unpaid time, but for most women, there's no guarantee that her job will be waiting for her when she gets back to work. In fact, one in four American women quit or are laid off when they have a baby, so they lose seniority and end up with an uneven work history. According to one study, each child lowers an American woman's earnings by 6 to 8 percent. Emma and her partner, on the other hand, will be able to divide a full year of paid parental leave between them. Many Danes have union contracts that pay 100% of their salaries during that time, but if they don't, the government will give them around 600 bucks a week while they're on leave. This is one reason why the gender pay gap is around three times bigger in the U.S. than it is in Denmark. Emma and Rachel will watch their kids grow up, and then they'll look to enjoy their golden years. As an average American, Rachel will work two years longer than Emma. Emma's pension will be about two-thirds of her pre-retirement income, while Rachel's Social Security checks will cover less than half of what she had earned. So you get the picture. Emma will have lived her life under the crushing burden of democratic socialism, that combination of state-funded education, health care, parental leave, and plenty of other benefits has made the citizens of Denmark the second happiest people in the world. And Americans? We're number 15. In the weeks leading up to this meeting, there have been protests in Hamburg and across Germany and elsewhere in Europe. Why are the people protesting? 
because the mass of people, the mass of people, have been badly damaged by not only the crisis that capitalism brought in 2008 to the whole world, but by the response orchestrated and organized by the G20 in the years since 2008, which is roughly now coming on to a full decade. The people protesting are angry at the policy that was adopted by the G20, country by country, to cope with the crisis. That's what they told us. In order to get out of this crisis, they said, we need what came to be called austerity. We needed the government to cut back on the money it spent for social programs, to cut back on the number of people it employed, to tighten our belts, and that will get us through the crisis. Well, I'm here to tell you as a professional economist that it was a nice story, but it wasn't true. What the real agenda was, and that has been carried out in every one of those 20 countries, was to say, let's double down. Not only is capitalism a system that can bring into crisis the world economy, costing hundreds of millions of people their jobs, sometimes for years on end, but we're a system that is so well organized that we can use the crisis to our advantage, to do something in the name of dealing with the crisis that we've been trying to do for 30 years. And you know what that is? To roll back the gains made in the aftermath of the last capitalist crisis, the Great Depression of the 1930s. In the wake of that depression, we had here in the United States the New Deal. In Europe, you had the rise of what we call social democracy, a system in which the mass of people said, we are not going to live in a capitalism that crashes our wages, destroys our livelihoods, undoes the family values to which they give empty lip service. No, no. We demand to be taken care of with a national health insurance, with subsidized education, with a welfare program. If you can't provide jobs, you capitalists, then the government that you control is going to have to do it, one or the other of you. And that worked in the United States, and it worked in Europe as well. And the business community hated it. Hated it because they were taxed in part to pay for it. Hated it because it gave the working class a sense of its own power, what it could achieve if it worked together to do so. Capitalism or no capitalism. They didn't like it. They wanted to roll it back to undo the New Deal and European social democracy. They tried over and over again. They weren't able to get very far. Not in the United States as far as they wanted. That's why we have Trump. Not in Europe as far as they wanted. But the crisis, their own crisis, gave them the chance. In the name of getting us out of the crisis capitalism brought us, the leaders of the United States and Western Europe came upon austerity. And what does austerity mean? Taking back the social services that have been provided to people. Cutting them. Laying off people who do those services, who provide them to all of us in the fields of education, in the fields of health, in the fields of social welfare, you name it, everywhere the effort, undo them. Not facing the truth of it, that we don't want to pay the taxes, 
Look at the struggle, for example, over the Trump GOP health bill. It's all about not taxing the super rich who would have to pay a good part of the extension of Medicaid to people with no insurance at all. We're willing to sacrifice 25 million people in America to save taxes to the richest. That's what we're talking about. That's austerity, whether you call it that or not. So the anger at the G20 is not just that they are the countries who embody the capitalism that brought us the crisis. It's even more that they have used it to further an agenda of taking away from the mass of people to enrich a minority. That's why in every one of those countries, the gap between rich and poor has gotten wider. The freedom of corporations to do what they want has been enhanced as the economic livelihoods of the mass of people have been constricted. That's why they have to take six-year car loans, because they don't have enough income to have a car, which they have to have any other way. There's one example of it that I can't forego letting you know. Recent research from UNICEF, the United Nations program to deal with the problem of the children of the world, brings it all home. Under the austerity programs of the G20, from 2008 to 2012, reports UNICEF, the number of children living in poverty in these rich countries has increased by 2.6 million or more. And here's the statistic that jumped out of UNICEF to give you an idea of what austerity has meant. Today, an average of one in five children in the 41 highest income countries in the world, that's a G20 plus another 20, one in five live in poverty. What a statement about modern capitalism as to what it has achieved for the people who suffer in and under it. In terms of fighting climate change, one of the most effective pieces of low-hanging fruit to start our shift to a renewable energy future is to sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than that of old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly indefinitely. To sign up, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best. If they don't service your area now, they have plans to come your way soon. So don't wait. There's nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you may think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. Elites have congratulated themselves about their handling of the financial crisis in the aftermath. And I mean, it is true. We didn't have a Great Depression. You would know if we had a Great Depression, it would be a lot worse. Um, but what we did have was not enough. And in particularly, and you see with a lot of this democratic agenda, is it's really poorly suited for helping working class people right at the margins, right? So you can say, you know, we expanded Medicaid. So we have this kind of like single payer-ish thing for um, poor people, which is really great. And people like Medicaid. And then we have a bronze plan for working class people who 
barely have enough money to get by. So now you're going to get a bronze plan, but it's complicated and there's subs- you get subsidies, but how do the subsidies work? And you have to gauge your income. Like it, it, you, you, you know, it, it, you set up a tension that does not need to exist, right? Debt-free college is perfect, right? Why are you setting up a tension between someone who makes maybe like a, a middle-class couple that's going to have a college bill now and uh, a working-class family that might have a smaller one? Like they should be solidaristic allies and making sure people can get their kids can get educated in good schools. Um, instead, you're, you've created a class tension where one does not need to exist. You saw a lot of reporting coming out after the election about people um, – who are relatively poor, who are in the Obamacare exchanges, Sarah Cliff at Vox did some reporting from uh, Kentucky, who were really angry and jealous of people who could get on Medicaid, right? That's a tension that's really tough. And this kind of floor way of approaching social insurance and having good things for our citizens creates a tension. It's just a nightmare to deal with politically. What do you think? What do you think is behind that? Like my sense is, is it's just, it's, it's less about i mean it it seems to have the impact of of you know sort of creating uh um you know throwing i don't know a, a bomb in the middle of some type of clash consciousness right i mean to um you know provide a, a, another for uh certain groups of people to hate and and whatnot but i i can't help but think that like that the architects of this just don't get it on some level right like i i mean you you tell me you've you've you are far more familiar with uh the way that these people devise these plans like i think it's just sort of like a complete obliviousness or some other sort of puritanical notion of like we've all got a bootstrap and you know we can make exceptions for some people uh you know not to mention uh we're still going to take our um uh you know our uh our, our home mortgage deduction uh that's something completely different but you know, uh, what, like, why do, why is there that almost relentless sense of creating programs in that fashion that are not universal? I think there's two big things that factor into it. One is the general idea that the American economy just basically works for everyone except the very poor. Uh, you can kind of have a really strict line that says, okay, basically everyone who, has a job full time is doing is doing fine and it'll be okay except the very poor and we just need to like have very specific programs for them to make sure they have the opportunity to become working class which is not how social security is put together right that's not it's 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 a, a way of dividing up that in many ways that kind of pity and charity view of the liberal welfare state hmm. um really dehumanizes people and also just makes it hard to actually create a class conscious around these things or have programs that are defended widespread um a second is i think and this is definitely definitive of, of the bill clinton years is a, a presumption that markets are always going to be the best way and so the more you can make someone have to open an envelope with a bill in it. The more you can make someone have to like look at their balance sheet and just figure out where they're going to put all their money and all these savings programs or whatnot, the more you can individualize people, uh, individualize people's relationship with programs makes it better because markets are magic. Even though we know markets don't really work for social insurance or making sure elderly people have food and, you know, and, and insurance and health insurance, right? So I think between those two things, uh, 
it's basically a top, like it's like a, a recipe for alienating working class people of all uh, races and genders, uh, because it, it basically says, unless you, unless you can prove how poor you are itself, a kind of dehumanizing thing, we're not going to care too much about you. And to the extent we do, we're going to put you in front of a predatory profit making institution and wish you luck at dealing with them. So much of it, I think it has to do with that sense of like, of, of this notion of, individuals and their uh, relationship to society. I mean, I feel like I keep in the back of my mind, you know, uh, thinking about the the moralizing that Obama would do about individuals with particularly when addressing the black community, about, you know, be your brother's keeper type of thing and talking about the, 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 the specific responsibilities of individuals as opposed to talking about things in a systemic way. Um, it, it, I mean, I guess in some way it also sort of validates, like, if if I really perceive the individual to have this power in society, then wherever I am, whatever station I'm at, is a function of me as opposed to uh, somebody else. Yeah, exactly. When you're talking about the things we're talking about, like, you know, everyone's going to be too old to work someday. You know, they need insurance. You can't. And, you know, you can say you should save enough for yourself, but if you make a bad investment or you just never made that much money, it's hard to do, right? You it, you know, I, I feel like that individualistic stuff really breaks down in the things we're talking about. Like if you happen to have lived in a city where the factory left for China because China kept its currency too low for 10 years, um, that's not – you can be as diligent and bootstrapped as you want. You're still screwed. So – especially at this moment, especially in the moment of the past eight years where the macro economy really became a real thing again, when the idea that the economy is a force beyond any individual's control, that your economic fate is not just a matter of how hard you work or how good you did in school, but whether or not you graduated into a recession or you know whether or not you lived in a place or an industry that was wiped out by all this stuff. The fact that th- those arguments never really moved to that dimension in a strong enough way, I think, was a real missed opportunity. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, reject Trump's morally bankrupt budget. When you take from the poor and give to the rich, most people aren't going to like you, even in America. But that's exactly what Trump and his administration are proposing in their 2019 budget for the federal government. Everyone knew the only way Republicans were going to even be able to try to pay for the massive tax cuts they gave to corporations, millionaires, and billionaires in the tax bill passed at the end of last year was to decimate funding for the parts of the government that they don't like. This was their long game. They could hardly wait for the tax bill to pass before using the talking point that we just can't afford entitlements. 
while simultaneously increasing the bloated defense budget and shoveling cash toward people who fund their campaigns. They got what they wanted, fulfillment of their heartless ideology, and a big return on investment for their donors. They were downright giddy. And then there's Trump. For someone so concerned with being liked, he has zero idea how to do it. His budget does the opposite of every single campaign promise that got him elected. He said he wouldn't cut Medicare, but the 2019 budget calls for historic cuts to the popular program. He said he would come to the rescue of veterans, but calls for $72 billion in cuts from Social Security Disability Insurance, which over 1 million veterans receive. He said he was a champion for rural Americans, but he is calling for the elimination of programs that exist entirely to strengthen economic development, workforce training, and education and infrastructure in rural communities. And then there's the gaslighting named Harvest Box, Trump's attempt to slash and replace the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, better known as SNAP or Food Stamps. This theoretical box would contain zero fresh food and takes away the ability for a person to make their own decisions about the food they eat. It will go down as yet another Trump brand failure, but this time the bad idea would directly hurt millions of low-income people and their children. The immorality and injustice of this budget proposal is glaring on every page. In many ways, it acts as a textbook for understanding just how cruel and unusual Trump and Republicans really are. The Center for American Progress has put together a number of fact sheets on this budget, outlining how it specifically harms various segments of the population, including the elderly, the LGBT community, communities of color, rural Americans, veterans, women, people with disabilities, and children. In other words, almost literally everyone. The Center for Budget and Policy Priorities has also provided extensive research on the harmful impacts of Trump's budget. We've linked to these documents in the show notes, and we encourage you to check them out and share them widely. The budget may just be a proposal right now, much of which won't make it into real legislation, but it says so much about where Trump and Republicans want to take this country. We need to reject this budget soundly and loudly by frequently calling members of Congress and following and getting involved with organizations like the Coalition on Human Needs at chn.org and Social Security Works at socialsecurityworks.org. It's also important to note that Trump's budget assumes an unrealistic economic growth rate of 3%. The current projection is 1.9. So the reality is that even with all those draconian budget cuts, the Trump and Republican tax plan will likely still leave us in deeper national debt. Not that they actually cared as they pretended. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if making sure this country moves in a moral and compassionate direction is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about rejecting Trump's morally bankrupt budget via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change Back in 1974, a guy by the name of Jude Wininski, a Republican strategist, keeping, you know, just, we're going to step into the Wayback Machine. This is 70, 1974. This is the year Richard Nixon was going to be impeached and resigned from office. 
So go back into the Wayback Machine and look at, you know, this, that, that year. And Jude Wininsky says, I have an idea to permanently destroy the Democratic Party. And, you know, and, and raise the Republican Party uh, to, to, uh, to a real height. And he, he promoted this in 74, and then by 76, he actually published it in, um, in the Wall Street Journal. And what he said, basically, was cut taxes like crazy. When Republicans are in power, well, let me just back up a little bit. The first thing he said, he, he said, you know, the Democrats have been the party of Santa Claus since 1933, ever since Franklin Roosevelt took office. They brought a, they, 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 they were the Santa Claus of Social Security. They were the Santa Claus of Medicare. They were the Santa Claus of worker protections. They were the Santa Claus of, of protecting unions. They were the Santa Claus of, of uh, I mean, you know, the, the list just goes on and on, right? Uh, pure food uh, protections, uh, regulations, protections, consumer protections, uh, preventing banks from ripping people off protections. Uh, they, you know, the, the Democrats have been the Santa Claus for all these things. And every single one of them, Republicans, have not played Santa Claus. They've played Scrooge. They've said, no, we can't afford that. Every single time. And so by 1974-76, Jude Wininsky observed, Americans viewed the Republicans as the Scrooge party, not the Santa Claus party. And in fact, there had been, and by, by 74, there had only been a couple, two times, I believe, during that entire time, from, from 1932 until 1976, uh, you know, one in 1954 and the other one, I'm not sure, was sometime in the 60s, where the Republicans actually held the House of Representatives for even two years. They were just like out in the wilderness after the, what was referred to back in the 40s as the Republican Great Depression. So Wininsky said, we've got to become the party of Santa Claus too, number one, and we have to force the Democrats to shoot their own Santa Claus, especially the big Santa Claus, Social Security. So how do we do this? Jude Wininsky asked, and he laid this out for Republicans. He says, it's very simple. He said, when Republicans come into office, whenever Republicans control most of the levers of power, Republicans should run up the debt and the deficit as hard and as fast as they possibly can. And then when Democrats come into office, Republicans should scream nonstop about the debt and the deficit that they themselves created and convince people to convince Democrats to, like Bill Clinton said, you know, when he was president, the era of big government is over. Convince Democrats to shoot the Santa Claus that they so carefully constructed from the 1930s until the 1980s. Make the Democrats shoot their own damn Santa Claus. And meanwhile, we, the Republicans, will become the Santa Claus of tax cuts. And if Republicans will just stick to this, Jude Wininsky said in 1976, even though right now, now this, you know, this was the, the 74 Nixon left by 76, no Republican, I mean, the Republicans were totally in the wilderness, right? We, they couldn't get elected dog catcher after the Nixon scandals. But Wininsky said, if you follow my advice, you will never lose power and you will eventually control the entire damn country. And the Republicans took this to heart. In fact, this became the organizing principle of the Reagan presidency. Ronald Reagan came into office. The national debt, not the deficit, the debt, right? The deficit is how much debt you run up in one year. The debt is the accumulation of all the years of debt. 
Our national debt right now is just passed $20 trillion. And and when Reagan came into office, the national debt was less than $1 trillion. It was about $800 million when Reagan came into office. By the time he left, he had tripled that. It was a little over $2 trillion. So Reagan tripled the debt, which allowed, after the Reagan administration, well, you had George Herbert Walker Bush, and he took this kind of stuff seriously. He actually raised taxes, which arguably is why he didn't, you know, it's, or it's one of the reasons why he didn't win re-election, why he lost to Bill Clinton. He didn't follow Judwininski's script. George Herbert Walker Bush didn't, didn't know. I mean, he, you know, he's the guy who had said Ronald Reagan was pursuing, quote, voodoo economics, end quote. He did not apparently agree with Judwininski and wasn't willing to pay, play partisan politics with the national debt. But that was now the, act, the, 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 the point of life for the Republican Party. So Reagan tripled the national debt. And then when Clinton became president, it, all the Republicans just go, oh, my God, the debt. Oh, my God, look at the debt. It's $3 trillion. We can't deal with this. Oh, my God, the country's going to go down the tubes. And so what happened? Bill Clinton cut back on a lot of social programs, declared the era of big government over, and was the, the, you know, the second president in the second half of the 20th century to actually propose a balanced budget. Jimmy Carter had before him. See, the Democrats, they buy into this stuff, right? Tragically. And so, you know, Clinton started shooting Santa. And then George W. Bush comes into office, and what does he do? He triples, or doubles the national debt. You know, when Bush came into office, our national debt wasn't even $10 trillion. And he put a, tr- a trillion and a half dollars on our national debt from tax cuts. He put about $4 trillion on our national debt from two wars that we completely did not need. He just totally jacked the national debt without saying a word about it. And then, and then he leaves office and, and uh, you know, Obama comes in and what are they doing? They're all screaming about the national debt. Today, Alan Rappaport and Thomas Kaplan writing in the New York Times, as deficit soars toward $1 trillion. Now, that's deficit is one year. This year, right? $1 trillion. As de- the fiscal year runs October to October, uh, or, you know, September 1st to October 31st. As deficit soars toward $1 trillion, Congress shrugs and keeps spending. Uh, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin urged Congress on Tuesday to raise the federal government's statutory borrowing limit. Now, Republicans, remember, Newt Gingrich shut down the government when Bill Clinton was president because Clinton wanted to raise the, de- the debt limit. And he says, nope, can't do it. Got to have a balanced budget. Back to the New York Times. Annual deficits are creeping up to $1 trillion, and the national debt has topped $20 trillion. On Monday, Treasury said the United States will need to borrow $441 billion in privately held debt this quarter. This is the two Santa Claus theory. Jude Wininski has long ago passed away, but he lives on. And why it is that this isn't part of our national folklore, it's not part of our national conversation. I don't know. This is, it's not a secret. You can easily Google two Santa Clauses and Jude Wininsky. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, every Republican knows this. They won't tell you this out loud, but this is widespread knowledge in the Republican party. When we have power, we run up debt. As soon as the Democrats take power, like if the Democrats take the house or the Senate in, in this year, in the elections in November, I promise you, 
January 1st or January 20th of next year, when everybody gets sworn in, all the Republicans are going to be screaming about is, oh, my God, the debt. We can't have more Medicare. We can't have Social Security fully funded. We can't have the, the EPA or the FDA or any of these other organizations doing anything for American people. We can't have the, the, the Consumer Protection Bureau. It's too expensive. We can't afford it. Well, of course, you can't afford it because you just ran up a massive national debt. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, in the most recent uh, bonus episode that members will be receiving, uh, Amanda and I uh, discussed, among many other things, this vicious cycle in our country, of distrust in the government. And it goes all the way back to the founding. And, you know, when the country was founded, it was pretty reasonable to be distrustful of government because there had never, uh, well, there hadn't been a recent democracy and we knew that monarchies couldn't really be trusted. And, you know, so, so there was plenty of concern for, uh, you know, the, the, the potential for governments to be tyrannical. And so we were founded out of this fear of government and until we put a lot of thought into putting limits on government. And the way that plays out hundreds of years later is that we seem to not be able to have nice things because we're afraid that anything good in any way that comes from the government is just one step down a slippery slope to horrible tyranny. So that gets me thinking about, you know, how, how do we break that cycle? I mean, it's hundreds of years old. It's, it's not likely to be fully broken anytime soon, but it's not like we don't have an example in the recent past of people being pretty excited about the government doing a bunch of stuff. And that was during FDR and the New Deal, as we heard discussed today. And so, okay, then you ask, well, how do we do that again? And of course, you know, you might answer in one of a few ways, but if you dig, you know, two or three levels deeper, the answer is get money out of politics. You know, you can't, you can't do any of that stuff without getting money out of politics because then, you know, it sort of clears the path for politicians to be able to do what citizens actually want. And what citizens want is FDR-like programs. And progress is being made in a variety of ways to get money out of politics, but is there any hope coming from any other direction? And I think the answer is maybe. The previous election, the Democratic primary, brought to the fore a big discussion that, that it, it shined a light on the split within the Democratic Party, the more progressive wing versus the more status quo, more corporate-friendly wing. And what is interesting about what's happening now during the Trump years with that primary election definitely still having an impact today, but it's pretty far in our rearview mirror at this point. But one little piece at a time, evidence is showing that people are emulating 
the Bernie wing of the party, uh, people who you wouldn't necessarily have thought would do that. So the the most recent news that broke within the last week and a half or so is that first, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand and then Cory Booker, two definite Democratic presidential hopefuls, uh, have decided to reject corporate PAC money. And, and of course, they're just following in the footsteps of people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who are way out ahead of the pack on this. So, okay, so you, you might start to think, okay, so maybe the, the party is being more friendly to the Bernie wing. But if you heard the recent This American Life that included a discussion about the Democratic Party, then you'll know that the likes of Bernie Sanders and Keith Ellison weren't even invited by the Democratic leadership to help launch their new better deal, uh, you know, party platform that uh, you know Schumer and Pelosi were announcing. They're all very excited about it, and it landed with a bit of a thud. But you know, it's a party platform. Unless you have someone like Bernie Sanders who can get thousands of people out and uh, act a bit like a rock star, things like that aren't going to be that exciting. But you know, they they didn't invite the most popular people who sort of represent the base of their party when announcing where they wanted to take their party. So clearly, the establishment is still working to sideline the progressive wing, but those who are more ambitious within the party, you know, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi aren't running for president anytime soon, but the people who are, are starting to fall in line more with the Bernie wing. And you know, of course, obviously, it's only because it's politically expedient. I'm not saying you should suddenly trust them. But the fact that it's happening is a really important bellwether. And it's not the first, you know, a, a bunch of Democrats likely to run for president also signed on to Bernie's Medicare for all bill uh, a few months ago, right when he was announcing it. So, you know, the fact that Democratic leadership is still trying to sideline Bernie and his allies is sort of starting to not matter. You know, the, the politics that Bernie represents, which we always say is the more important part of him, it's not about the dude himself, uh, it, it's about what he represents, but that style of politics is becoming the center of gravity in the party uh, even while the old guard tries to resist. You know, his, his style of politics is it's like it's you know it's a black hole it's so dense it's drawing people toward it who you never thought would go that way and so uh, you know 2018 obviously is, is the next election coming up and it's going to be interesting to see how state level candidates run and how voters respond um, but the 2020 election is shaping up to be more interesting than i initially thought because there's no clear front runner and it might turn out that everyone's going to end up trying to be more like Bernie in hopes of winning the nomination. You know, they, they may not be running away from that anymore, and they might start running toward it. And that's the kind of turning point that can make huge differences in politics. The, the way we talk about how we want to govern, the, 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 the arguments we make, the, the aspirations we put forward uh, can make a really, really big difference. And and then when you throw in, I mean, if, if they're serious about it and there's not, uh, you know, weird loopholes, if these people really are not taking corporate PAC money, that might actually free them up to argue for things that people really want in a way that they wouldn't have felt free to do before.
So it's taken a really long time, and we've had to go through some horrible, horrible pain to get to this point. But miraculously, after decades of people like me calling for the second coming of FDR, it's just the slightest bit possible that we are finally on track for that again, that people are actually going to be calling for that and are going to be incredibly responsive to that in a way that they really haven't been in decades. So keep an eye on that. Uh, Share your thoughts with us if you have them. As always, give us a call 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.